please turn with me, if you haven't already, to the book of Titus. Uh, we are in our series entitled Fit Church. And what we've been doing uh, the past, and this is week nine, we are in this series. This is the last stop in our Fit Church series. Uh, we've been looking at what it means to be a fit church. You know, God, when he saves a person, he doesn't leave them by themselves. He brings them and places them in a body of believers. Um, and it's to be, a believer is to be a part of a church body, to be connected, to have accountability. And the church is structured that way. And so often what we have done in modern evangelicalism is that we have tried to whittle the word of God down and the Christian walk down to the point where it's just me and Jesus and you can't say boo about my life. And that is, that is not true. It is not true at all. God has laid open in, uh, his word for us to live the entirety of our life under his authority. And one of the things that we see is that he has set us, when he saves us, into a church body. Im- imperfect though it may be, he desires each and every uh, individual Christian to be a part of this greater body, without exception. There are no exceptions to this rule. A person who says, I'm a Christian and not involved in a church, I really doubt if they're a Christian. And I mean that sincerely. And you could say, well, how dare you question me? I question you because you're questioning the word of God. And if you're not ready to follow the word of God, what makes you think you believe in the son of God? Because if you believe in the son of God, you want to follow the precepts of God. And fulfill the purpose of God for your life. And his purpose is for you to be a part of this body of believers. Now, for the past several weeks, we have been looking at what does a healthy church look like? What are the the non-negotiables? And there are are some that are already given. Prayer, worship. These are the integral and parts of, uh, of, of the body of Christ. But we've been looking and highlighting more of these nine nine marks that are normally not highlighted and most people don't think about. And we've looked at preaching. We've looked at what's called biblical theology. uh, We've looked at the essence of the gospel. We've looked at evangelism. We looked at discipleship. We have looked at what it means to be a church member. We have talked about church discipline. Um, And now we are moving into uh, our final one, which is on church leadership. Church leadership. Who is to lead a church? Now, undoubtedly, many of us hear that terminology, and some of us just tune out. We think, it doesn't apply to me. I'm, I'm all good. I don't need that. Again, you need to tune in, because if you are a part of his body, the church, then you need to know how it functions. You need to know how, what it means to be a part of this body of believers and how God has instituted it. Now, undoubtedly, and, and for, uh, uh, surely each one of us in this room have a concept in our mind when we hear the term church leadership. Uh, we think back to either what we knew growing up. If you were blessed enough to grow up in church, then you have an idea. You might think of a senior pastor, or if you grew up in uh, another uh, branch of Christianity, you might be used to a priest, or uh, you might hear of a bishop, or a monk, or whatever it might be. You might have these ideas in our mind. But a lot of these issues that we have in our minds are influenced more by tradition than they are biblical truth. So we have to go back to the Word of God and say, what does the Word of God say? Uh, And not let all the other things influence us. We have to peel back the layers 
and get to the heart of the matter and say, how has God purposed to lead a church? Now, as I have been thinking about that, I mean, I, I think of the term leadership, and leadership is a huge word today. Huge. We all talk about the need of good leaders. Just coming off an election, we talk about leaders, and some people are like, some people are extremely excited about the next few years. Some people are extremely depressed about the next few years. I'm not here to, to uh, align your party. That's not my point. I'm just talking about the point of leadership, and leadership is huge, whether it's in a country, whether it's in a family, in a business, or in a church. We're on a team, and we all need and look to leaders. And when we look to Christian leaders, we're not just looking at abilities, but we're looking at the heart. And I'm reminded of a song. I'm not going to attempt to sing it in this state, but by uh, Bill Gaither. Bill Gaither is uh, a a songwriter. He's in his his 70s, um, still actively singing and writing songs. And he wrote a song in 1990 called A Few Good Men. A few good men. And I wanted to share this with you because I believe it is indicative of what we are trying to talk about uh, in this, this uh, mark of the church. And he says in this song, what this dying world could use is a willing man of God who dares to go, go against the grain and works without applause. A man who will raise the shield of faith, protecting what is pure, whose love is tough and gentle, a man whose word is sure. God doesn't need an orator who knows just what to say. He doesn't need authorities to reason him away. He doesn't need an army to guarantee a win. He just needs a few good men. Men full of compassion who laugh and love and cry. Men who face eternity and aren't afraid to die. Men who fight for freedom and honor once again. He just needs a few good men. And with the world just seemingly collapsing all around us. We do need leaders that will not only preach, but will back it up with practice. They're men of passion, but they're also men of purity. Men who love God so much that they would rather die than compromise His truth. And today, I think we are in need. We are in a famine in a lot of places especially in many churches, of good men and good women, uh, good leaders, but specifically um, for men that are willing and capable and called to lead uh, the body of Christ. So today we're going to look at the few good men that I believe that God has chosen as we look in this passage today to lead his church and how we are to emulate it, what it means to us who are not those leaders and also how we are to follow them. But before we go any further, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this opportunity. I thank you for this series. I thank you for the small groups and the teachers and the leaders and those who have been working behind the scenes, preparing food and going through discussions. I thank you for those who uh, have seen fit to serve you and honor you and glorify you. And Lord, we come before you now asking you to intercede in our lives and in our church. to Help us to see and, and feel the weight upon our hearts of what it means to have a church that, has, uh, that is led by and raising up um, good men who are seeking to follow you and are called to follow you in leadership. Lord, I pray your blessing on us as a body. Uh, we pray this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's really jump right in to our text. See, uh, 
when, and I mentioned before, when we talk about the subject of church leadership or governance, uh, there are many thoughts that are in our minds, but we need to look to the Scripture and the Scripture alone. Now, let's look at verse 5. This is Paul writing to Titus. Um, Titus is a pastor of a church, and he is uh, uh, one of the elders there. And he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now, what we're seeing here is the beginning. You are in chapter 1 of the early church. We are seeing how it's set up. We are going back in time. We're getting in the DeLorean. We are hitting 88 miles an hour with 1.21 gigawatts. And we are enabled to see uh, back in time on how God has set up his church initially. And he is uh, laying before us the correct form of leadership. And if we are to, to follow uh, God's plan for the church, we need to rec- uh, pursue the correct form of church leadership. That's number one in your notes. We need to have the correct form of church leadership. Now, he says appoint elders. Now, what that means is, is he's talking about elders as uh, usually the term is used for older men, but here it's, it's more referring to those who are spiritually mature, those who have been around, those who understand doctrine. And he's laying out these qualities of these men who are usually older, but who are, are, are um, understanding and wise and, and, and knowing how to lead uh, the body of Christ. And what he's saying in, is he goes, I'm... I'm laying this out for you and how a church should be run. And what that means is, or this requires us finding men with a track record of faithfulness. We're looking for people with a track record of faithfulness. That's the next point uh, we have there, finding men with a track record of faithfulness. Now, this doesn't mean presidents and CEOs. A person can be a president and CEO of a multi-billion dollar corporation and not be qualified to be an elder. Uh, a person can look great and be a great speaker, but if their heart's not right, then they shouldn't be there. It's not about if you can make money. It's not if you're about a great businessman. Um, it's, it's a person with a track record of faithfulness. Now, I want us to break this down here. He says, is, um, appoint elders in every town, and he's talking about the churches that are there. They would have one church usually per town, not like we have today with a plethora of churches. churches. And he says, as I directed you in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. Uh, For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. Now, what this doing here and what he's laying out for us is he's showing us that these are men of maturity, first of all. These require men of maturity. Look at... um, when we, these aren't novices, they've been around a while. Now, I have another text that I want us to refer to. Um, it's in 1 Timothy chapter 3. I'm not, it's on page 992 in your pew Bible if you have one. Um, and flip through there, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, Paul is also speaking to young Timothy about how the church is to be set up. And he gives us another characteristic. He says, He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit, and fall into the condemnation of the devil. The idea is, is that he's been around a while. He's not just a brand new believer. You don't take a brand new believer and put him in charge of a church uh, because it'll, it'll go to their head. They'll think they're all that. I remember hearing it when I was a young pastor that one of the greatest dangers of a young pastor is to, to have success. Because then he can't. He he thinks that he's the most greatest guy in the world. He doesn't understand failure. He doesn't understand how people have gone through failure, and it, he needs to understand failure. 
Um, and, and here we see that it's a person who is mature. They've been around the block. They know what's going on. Another thought is on in verse 9 of Titus chapter 1. So you can turn back to that on page 998. When, this, when Paul says of the prospective elder that he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Contradict it. So he's talking about individuals who are spiritually mature in regards to the faith. And as Christians, we're going to encounter all kinds of believers from different backgrounds and people who could be false teachers. They might look like Christians. They might sound like Christians. They might have a show on the church channel. Okay? And that doesn't mean, though, that they are true teachers. And, and they could have a book on sale at Walmart. Okay, I, I can't tell you that, and, and let me reiterate this, just because they have a book doesn't mean they know what they're talking about. All right? I mean, seriously. Um, just because they've written something doesn't mean that they're an authority on it or that they understood it rightly. We need to be able to discern truly what is being taught. And we have to be able to see, because you know why? Publishers are not always trained Christians. Producers of TV shows are not always trained Christians. You know, they're seeing these Bible series come out that have been on TV. Have you seen these? And you see some of these people that are put in positions and they're looked on as spiritual authorities and they have no training. But because they're producers and they're Christian, people think that they should all be listened to. No, it's not the case. We have to say, what does the word of God say? A person can be in a position of authority like that in a secular environment, but it doesn't mean that they are a spiritual authority. So here, these are people that are spiritually mature. Not only that, uh, not only must he be a man of maturity, but he also must be a man of integrity. Integrity. Look at verse 7 of Titus chapter 1 with me. For an overseer, this is also a a term used to describe the elder, uh, as God's steward must be above reproach. So elder and overseer, they're used in conjunction with one another. He is to oversee his stewardship. He understands that he is watching over others, but that he himself must be above reproach. He must be a person of integrity, uprightness, not open to others, libel, gossip, or slander. Now, I had the privilege when I first became a pastor of working with a man who had, who had been in pastoral ministry for over 40 years. It was Larry Powell. Larry was a good man, a faithful man. You could set your clock by the guy. Um, and he, he was a, a great heart. Uh, he had a great heart of a shepherd. And I remember hearing the story about the importance of integrity. And one of the things that he did one time was he was going to visit some of the members of his church. And he went to, uh, he had had on the schedule of visiting one of the women in the church who was known to uh, have a very bad reputation with men. And so he wisely brought his wife along to this visitation. He went to this woman's house and uh, they're talking when the woman receives a phone call. And she says on the phone, oh, the pastor's here with me. And Larry's wife, her name was Alice, spoke up and she goes, and his wife. She just put that in there and, and didn't think much about it, you know, went home. And the next day they got a phone call from one of the leaders of the church. And they said, Pastor, um, I, I really need to know something. I need you to be honest with me. Why were you at so-and-so's household? I saw your car there. 
Now, he could have said, I was visiting. If he had not brought his wife, it could have been any type of accusation. But he goes, my wife was with me. We were visiting this woman. And he goes, oh, okay, all good. See? It's about being a person of integrity. And Larry had great integrity. And that's what God calls an elder to be. Notice that he is, in verse 7, God's steward. It literally means household manager. Since the local church is called the household of God, according to 1 Timothy 3.15, this is a very appropriate term. Um, this, thus, a steward is a manager, administrator, or trustee of someone else's household, property, or business. I am not, this is not my church. This is God's church. This is Jesus' church. I'm a steward of it. I'm going to be held to give an account for how I helped lead all my failures and the successes. But it's not my church. It's not one person's church. When I hear people say it's my church, it's like, no, it's not. It's God's church. I don't remember and recall you dying for that church. It's God's church. We are stewards. And since all of God's people are called to live holy and blameless lives, and since the world casts a critical eye at the Christian community, and since Christian leaders lead primarily by their example, an irreproachable life is an indispensable to the Christian leader, meaning that they are accountable, they're above reproach, they're not known to, to uh, take money for themselves, they're not they're out for their own gain, um, but they have a responsibility. See, not only must they be men of maturity and integrity, but they must be men of responsibility, knowing that they've been entrusted with a task, entrusted with a task to do. Now, they have to be faithful in the little things of life, and if they can't be faithful with the little things of life, how can they be faithful with God's people, the most trusted, secret, sensitive situations in the sins of others? Now, the man must be a man who understands what he believes, and according to verse 9, must be able to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, the word rebuke means expose, convict, reprove, or show to be guilty, meaning that they, they have to be able to speak the truth in love. They must be courageous. They must be able to, to care more about truth uh, and to be able to, to care enough about that truth to defend it. And so what we see here, then, is an elder then must be a man of authority, and authority. Now, we can have pretty pejorative understanding of the term authority because we've seen the abuse of authority. But here, we're seeing that God is saying that they have to, they're not walking around saying that they are in charge, that they're individuals who understand the Word of God and that present the Word of God and they believe the Word of God to act on it with authority and integrity that they are understanding and they, are, they, they believe the word of God is true. They're ready to defend it. Um, but this is, this is not a person walking around and announcing, announcing to everybody that they're an elder. Like, you have to respect me, I'm an elder. That's not it at all. It's a man of authority. This is a person who uh, cares about God and his people, his purposes, as well as the principles in the word of God and the precepts in the word that they know um, they must share to correct erring brothers. And although the elders' task, it goes further. After God and his word, elders are given the task and responsibility of instructing God's people in the oracles and knowledge of God, a very great and sober responsibility. Now, Stephen Lawson, he's a former pastor, and now he runs a, a, a ministry. He said this, 
Those who preach the word are the most influential people in the world. The world does not know this. The media certainly does not recognize this. But whoever upholds the Bible is the single most influential figure in the church as well as society. And Lawson actually gives the story of being, uh, get, receiving an email from a senator. And the senator uh, called him and started interacting with him, invited him to Washington, D.C., where he spent the day with his senator. And as they talked, he just went through the day. He was kind of counseling the senator. At the end of the day was a press conference, and, and the pastor was in attendance. And um, the, the uh, senator was talking, and he mentions a pastor that is there. And then all the cameras turned to him, and they asked him the question. They said, are you going to, to declare yourself for Senate? This is, and Lawson was caught off guard. He was like, no. He goes, why would I stoop down to be a senator when I have the most important job in the world? Now, we laugh at that, but it's very true. Matter of fact, Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, uh, during the 19th century, was one of the most famous, if not the most famous man in all of Great Britain, to the point where his popularity soared, not just across Great Britain, but through all over the English-speaking world. This was in the 19th century, mind you. He was so influential in so many different circles that someone asked him if he wanted to be the prime minister or be the king. And he goes, why would I stoop to be the king? And his understanding was very true, that he understood that he has been given a divine job by God, the most honorable and holy uh, job to be set apart. But it's also one that requires, has a great deal of weight because he'll be judged more strictly. When you get in line for judgment, don't get in the pastor or elder line. It's a long line. It's going to take a while. Because okay? elders, as teachers, those who teach the word of God will be ju- judged much more strictly. And that brings a set of terror into my own heart when I think of that weighty responsibility. We as leaders have a God-given um, responsibility through his word and his spirit. Uh, we've given a responsibility and given an authority we know that we have to yield it carefully. Now, also notice that there is elders. The, plur, plur, the term is plural. This is not referring to just one person. There is no senior pastor model in the Bible. It is always a plurality of godly men that have been set apart to lead. Now, these individuals are to shepherd God's people, avoid false teachers, and to instruct in sound doctrine. Now, the term there literally means healthy. Uh, or healthy, not, excuse me, doesn't literally mean that. It, it means healthy doctrine. That's more the understanding that we should have. These are individuals that have an authority that comes from God, not for themselves, but for you, so that you might continue to avoid sin and walk in the peace and joy of God. Now, knowing this is such a divine and sober responsibility that God has laid for us, it is imperative for us to make sure that we are following God's formula for leadership. This isn't something you're going to see in our text for today, but I, after observing it and looking over many different concepts and truths, that these principles, I believe, uh, stand firm very fast and very, um, very, they're very weighty and true. First of all, I want to look at this. If we're to farm, formulate uh, or follow God's formula for um, leadership, we have to understand that responsibility without authority equals anarchy. Responsibility without authority equals anarchy. Now, a person can be responsible, but he doesn't exercise his authority. It leads to anarchy. And, and what that means is we need to be able to 
Uh, I mean, we're all responsible, but we all do not have equal authority. Like in government, for example, I have a responsibility as a citizen of the United States of America to vote. It's my responsibility. But I do not have the authority to enforce the law like a elected politician will. See, when we elect a politician, we are giving them the authority to help change legislation and to enforce it. So we're installing them with authority. But if you have responsibility, but yet you don't have authority to follow through in a church or in government, then that's anarchy. That's everybody doing whatever they want to do. Everybody's claiming, to, wanting to be the authority. They all believe they have a responsibility, but they're not endowed with the authority, so they have to get it by force. Now, let's look at the converse. Let's switch them. Let's say that you have authority, but you don't have responsibility. Then that equals tyranny. See, I can have authority, but I don't care about the people in my stead. Then I'm just a dictator. Now, I know we don't, many of us in this room don't know what it's like to live under a dictator. I've been, I've been sharing with you about my friend that I've been meeting with, uh, who's a Shia Muslim. We've been uh, interacting with one another, and he was in Iraq. And, he, and, and, and we were talking about there's a culture of fear. He said, I said, were you fearful of your life? He said, every day, every single day, that he could just kill in a moment. Didn't have to ask. He said something wrong. He, he actually, this man, had gone to college with Saddam Hussein's son. And he said, I stayed far away from him as I possibly could because he didn't hesitate to take whatever he wanted whenever he wanted it. He didn't care who he hurt. He just said he'd take whatever woman, any man, and he just instantaneously killed. He had authority, but he didn't care about the people. And that was tyranny. And that can happen in government, and it can happen in the church. What we see within the Word of God, though, is this. We see that responsibility plus authority equals stability and safety. I mean, we're not perfect as elders, as a team of elders. We're not always perfect. But we do recognize that we are responsible for you. The problem is right now there's only two of us. <laughs> two of us at our campus. There was, we know we have a responsibility and how to exercise that authority, and that leads to stability and safety. But we know that we have to give an account. And when you realize that, it causes you to look at the job a whole lot differently because it's not about us. It's about God. I'm going to be held to an account for everything that he has entrusted to my care. Now that we've looked at the correct form of leadership that God's word has established, let's look at the qualifications of those who are to take and serve in these God-ordained roles. I want us to flip back over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 on page 992. Excuse me. Page 992. Sorry, I don't have more energy. I know many of you want me to be amped up, but if I was, I wouldn't be able to speak for a week which my wife might like that. Uh, just kidding, honey. Just kidding. So here we go. Page 992 in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires 
to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Now, the word for aspires means aspire, stretch towards, and in, it is always in the Greek middle voice, which carries the idea of stretching oneself out. There's an inward compulsion that God has placed within them to want to serve. Serve. And, and, and what we see here is that there, we are looking for those with a consuming call from the Lord. A consuming call from the Lord. We see that this is the first point I want to make. A person must be called to the office of elder, pastor. God called Abraham. He called Moses to be a prophet. He called Isaiah to be a prophet. Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. And in the New Testament, we see Paul called to be an apostle. Now, what does this call look like? It's a raging fire within them. It's a consuming call. Now, the 19th century uh, pastor Spurgeon said it this way. He, he said this, The first sign of the heavenly call is an intense, all-absorbing desire for the work. In order to be a true call to the ministry, there must be an irresistible, overwhelming craving. Craving and raging thirst for telling to others what God has done to your own souls. Do not enter the ministry if you can help it, was the deeply sage advice of a divine to one who sought his judgment. If any student in this room, Spurgeon was speaking to his pastor's college that he had established, he says, if there is any student in this room that could be content to be a newspaper editor or a grocer or a farmer or a doctor or a lawyer or a senator or a king, in the name of heaven and earth, let him go his way. He is not the man whom dwells the Spirit of God in his fullness. For a man so filled with God would utterly weary of any pursuit, but that for which his inmost soul pants. If, on the other hand, you can say that for all the wealth of both the Indies, you cannot and dare not espouse any other calling so as to be put aside from preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, then depend upon it. If other things be equally satisfactory, you have the signs of this apostleship. We must feel that woe is unto us if we preach not the gospel. The word of God must be unto us fire in our bones. Otherwise, if we undertake the ministry, we shall be unhappy in it, shall be unable to bear the self-denials incident to it, and shall be of little service to those among whom we minister. And what was he saying to us? That there has to be a consuming call. I know of some pastors, when they hear of young men that want to be ministers, what do they try to do? They try to talk them out of it. Some people would say, how dare you? How can you try to talk someone out? Let them serve. They, God wants them to serve. And my thought is, if I can talk them out of it, they shouldn't be in it. That if they're really wanting to be the ministry, nothing I will say will stop it. Nothing I will say. Because a lot of times, they don't realize the price you have to pay. For As your family, they don't realize the late nights. They don't realize the inner anguish that goes on when you're dealing with a wayward brother or sister. They don't know the, the heavy weight of understanding of being called to preach and teach and understanding that they will be called to give an account for everything that they've heard and done. He goes on, I speak of self-denials, and well I may, for the true pastor's work is full of them. And without a love to his calling, he will soon succumb and either leave the drudgery or move on in discontent, burdened with a monotony as tired, tiresome as that of a blind horse in a mill. They don't know what to do. Now, I'm not saying that, that your, your occupation is not a holy endeavor. God calls us, even in our secular pursuits, to glorify him and all that we do. 
My point is to say that there are some that God has called that they're not better than an individual. They've been entrusted with a task, a stewardship, to proclaim the excellencies of Christ. And that's a weighty, very weighty responsibility. Lawson, Stephen Lawson, as I mentioned before, gave this story. He says this, There is no higher calling under heaven than to be a preacher of the word of God. Charles Haddon Spurgeon said, If God has called you to be his servant, why stoop to be a king? I agree with Martin Luther, who said, If I could today become king or emperor, I would not give up my office as preacher. Luther was right. If the call of God has come upon your life to preach the word, that is the most thrilling, the most important, and the most strategic calling that has ever come to anyone. What we see here, and we can see that that any man to be considered an elder must have, first of all, the desire to serve. If a guy doesn't have a desire to serve, he shouldn't be an elder. I remember it being at my very first church, Midwest Bible Church, and there was a man that had been around the church for a long time. He was a faithful man. He loved the Lord, but he, wasn't, he didn't have a desire to be an elder. And they asked him because they needed bodies. So they asked him to serve as an elder, and he got up for the election time, and someone said, well, do you want this? And he's like, I really don't care. He's, and they said, well, you're going to be in Florida half the time. And he goes, vote for me, or if you don't, I don't care. The church voted him in anyway. This is dumb. It's just dumb. I mean, a good man. And, and one young woman, she was 19 years old, stood up with the word of God and it says, read this passage, if anyone aspires, he desires a noble task. Why are we going to invite you in if you don't desire it? And the people liked him, so they voted him rather than listen to the word of God. He needed it. And what happened is it became a drudgery. He became a pulling down the elder board. It caused a lot of conflict. He never should have been in the position. See, they must have a desire to serve. There also must be a heart, heartfelt devotion to the task. Heartfelt devotion to the task. No, I think of uh, the story of Charles Stanley. Many of you have heard of Charles Stanley, pastor of First Baptist Church in Atlanta, Georgia, and his son, Andy Stanley, also a very well-known pastor to a mega church. And Andy tells the story about when he was a very young man. He was in eighth grade, and there was a major church conflict going on. There was a meeting going on that only for the members. And what was going on is that there was a contingency, a group of individuals within the church that was calling for the ouster of his father. And uh, Andy said, I, I, I didn't know, I was in the back office, and he goes, my friend um, was sneaking into the baptistry and hearing the conversation, going back and reporting it to Andy. And it turns out his friend was a guy named Louis Giglio, but that's a whole nother, whole nother issue in himself. And he said, my father, I think, I can't remember if Stanley saw it himself or Giglio reported back, but someone got in Stanley's um, Charles Stanley's face demanded that he leave. And he said, no, my conviction, and God has called me to be the pastor of the church. I'm not leaving. And the guy pulled off and cold cocked him right in the face, punched him right in the face, and he didn't flinch. He just kept, kept his cool, kept, kept his reserve, and stood on his conviction and didn't resort to physical violence. And Andy said, I learned a very important lesson that day that the church is worth fighting for to endure all kinds of hostility, to stand forth for what is true. It's amazing. It's a heartfelt devotion to the task. You're going to be misaligned. 
And I don't mean to air the dirty laundry of groups, but I've been in churches where I've seen uh, innocent pastors. I've seen them be all kinds of accusations. The first pastor I mentioned, Larry Powell, there was a man in the church who had an issue with him. And uh, the man bought a car, parked it in front of the church, and put placards calling the pastor a child molester. Posted it all over the church. The same man went after almost every leader in the church because he was angry with them because of certain decisions that they had made. Let me tell you, that's Satan at work. But only a person who was truly called, and Larry was exemplary through this. He still loved the man. He still held on to it. The people at church rallied around him. He was a man of great integrity. This man was clearly disturbed. But I'm telling you, that's how Satan tries to destroy a church. That's what he tries to do. Um, and you have to be, have a heartfelt devotion to the task when everyone else in the whole world is falling away. You've got to be still devoted. And you also must have a dedication to serve with other elders. Now, he appointed elders, not just one. And I am one of, uh, I'm one of two here at this campus, and we have several more with our Sugar Grove and our Indian Creek camp- campus, and our votes are all equal. I am not the senior pastor of the church. Uh, I have, I'm a man of, uh, in authority, but I'm also under authority of the greater elder team. And our votes are all equal. I might have greater influence because I'm preaching each week, but um, my vote and the other elders vote, Scott, are equal. We have equal authority. And some of us have this old mentality where we just see the guy up front. And if the guy up front doesn't come and visit me, then I have a problem. Or he's not doing his job. But that's not the task. We have a very incorrect understanding that Scott and I are equal. And if he's able to help and then can, then he's doing that part and helps alleviate my burden so I can do mine as well. So it's a plurality uh, of elders. We have to have a dedication to serve on an elder team. Must get along. Now we've looked at the elder generally. Let's look at him more personally. Uh, We're to pursue those with Christ-like character. Those with Christ-like character. That doesn't mean that they're perfect. It doesn't mean that they walk around with halos and monks blaring behind the music of chants and things like that. It doesn't mean that they pray eight hours of a day. It means that they're, trying to, they're becoming more and more like Jesus as time passes. And I hope that's the case with myself, that I'm becoming more like Jesus. Uh, and, he said, and we see in verse 6, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife... And his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I want to break these down. First of all, we see that he has exceptional character and Christ-like character in the following areas. Morally. Morally. He's above reproach. The word reproach heads these list of, this list of qualifications. It's mentioned twice in verse 6. Excuse me. And in verse 7. It stands above the others because it's the big idea for the rest of the list, the overarching theme of their lives. They're to be above reproach, which means they're to be free from any offensive blight of character or conduct. He has a clean moral and spiritual reputation. It doesn't mean he's completely free from sin because no one is until they get to glory. It means that he is not marred by such a disgrace that would diminish his authority. He's a man of unblemished reputation. He practices what he preaches. Even as I read this, it freaks me out. Okay? Because I... I I'm preaching to myself. It's scary. And I continually have to ask myself, am I practicing what I preach? Secondly, he has to have Christ-like character domestically, the husband of one wife. It literally means he's a one-woman man. Now, some people ask the question, does that mean a divorced man can 
uh, be an elder? Uh, does that exempt a divorced man from being an elder? I don't think so, because I think what you're looking at here is the overall, uh, it's the understanding of present tense. You know, he's free from the love of money. He's not a drunkard. They're all present tense understandings. They're the not, not that he never did any of those things ever. Um, you know, how did that work? The idea is, is that he may have been divorced, but now he's a one-woman man. There is a trajectory of faithfulness in his life. He's devoted to his marriage and his family. Um, he's an example domestically. He's also raising his children. You see here, the children must be believers, I think is a poor translation. Uh, and the King James, I think, has it much better, having faithful children not accused of riot or unruly. Now, the word uh, in Greek is pistos, which simply means faithful or full of faith. To say that the child of an elder must be a believer is to go outside of the word of God. For one, uh, what if they're not old enough yet to understand? And, th- and then what if they're outside of the home? Uh, then they're free to make their own decisions. Are they not? Uh, I believe that this passage, what it's talking about, is teaching that the elder's children are faithful and not wild and crazy. Lord, help me. Help me now. My son is crazy. He will come to Christ, but that is not a guarantee, but a general promise. When we say train up a child in the way you should go, uh, it's a general promise for all believers. And this one, quite honestly, scares me to death because my kids are young. Sometimes I wish I was an older man and my children were grown and that I could say it was all done and they're following Jesus as missionaries. Uh, but mine are not. Mine are in the midst of a public school system. Mine are, are uh, coming home and saying things that I wish I, they never heard. But we're trying to inoculate them from the world a little bit at a time by giving them a little bit of the world as they go through school. Uh, I'm not saying that I'm not trying to advocate one form of education over another. Please don't misunderstand me. What I'm saying is, is that for our family, we're trying to inoculate them with a little bit of the world, a little bit at a time, and, then, and, and showing them what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the midst of that. And that, and that can be painful. It can be very painful when, they're, when their friends want to do something or they want to go see a movie that we are clearly against. It can be very hard. Because they feel like they're being left out. And we're trying to explain to them and show them our convictions that we value the word of God more than we do earthly acceptance. And when you're 12 or 8 years old, that is a very hard reality to deal with. Because you want to be with your friends. You want to be accepted. You want to be a part of society. And we're trying to show them what it means to be a Christ follower in the midst of that. Next, he's to have Christ-like character socially. Socially. He should not be one who is arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Um, He's not arrogant or full of himself. He's not quick to get into fights or a drunk who has a major temper problem or who is in it for the money. Uh, I've seen some of these things happen, unfortunately, in churches. I knew of one church that hired a man. After they hired him, he went into the meeting, made his list of demands. They disagreed, stood up, shouted at him, and walked out. That is not how a shepherd is to be. That's not a shepherd. He's to have a Christ-like character spiritually, spiritually. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he might be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. They're not spiritual lightweights or newcomers. They know the Bible. doesn't mean that they have to go to Bible college or seminary, but there is a desire to grow in the knowledge of God's word and to teach others about it, even rebuking false teaching when necessary. They need to be able to direct people to the word of God to find counsel 
and away from superstition and folk religion. And we have a tendency to wrap our personal, familial, and cultural prejudices in the word of God. And those need to be identified, rebuked, and turned away from. The elders are to help lead the church in that endeavor spiritually. Lastly, we are to pursue those who care for the flock and are capable of teaching others. Those who care for the flock and are capable of teaching others. Elders are men who who are to teach others about the faith, who can explain it, direct others to it, but who care deeply for their people. Uh, This means elders are to be engaging in people's lives as best as they can. And it's hard because some people are more needy than others and we can't engage everyone equally. And I feel the weight of this. Matter of fact, this is, I feel like we as a team, and I think Scott would agree with me, we're failing in this. We want to be engaging in people's lives on a more active basis. But the reality is, is you're only one man. And one man, can you have your own family to shepherd and shepherd the people of the church. We need other elders. We need, and I'm praying and been praying for several months that God would raise up godly men in our church to step into that role and serve as elders. Because we need other people to shepherd, to give an account for people's lives because we aren't doing it to the best of our ability and able to meet all the needs that people have. Secondly, they're to be encouraging and exhorting others. They want to see others grow in faith, to a greater step of faith and surrender. Uh, they want to see people grow in their walk with Jesus. Thirdly, they are to be established in doctrine. They have to know what the Word of God says. Uh, they're capable of teaching others. You can't teach other people until you know the Word of God yourself. And lastly, they are educating others in the truth. They are teaching the Word of God and want to see others grow in their faith in Christ. So there it is. This is what God has laid out within His Word. We could spend a lot more time going through and breaking these down piece by piece. And we need a few good men. And I, and I, and I hate to even say need. I, I hate using that term because it makes it sound like there's a desperation and that God is just waiting, saying, come to me. It's not that case at all. God doesn't need anybody. He chooses to use people. Big difference. He chooses to use. And I think that there are some people that are missing out on the blessing of, of, of doing what God has called them to do. Not that it's needed. I mean, it, it's established. And God is looking for those who want to follow him in that regard and feel that conviction. Now, what does this message mean? Let me have some concluding thoughts for us all. First of all, if you're an elder or feel the calling to be one, count the cost. Don't just do it because there's a need. Do it because you are compelled to do it. Don't just say, well, I'll do it. No go. Secondly, for those of us in the church, we are to use these qualifications as a benchmark in your own life. How are you doing with that? How are you doing it fulfilling these? You may not be called to the office of elder, but you're definitely called to help exemplify these characteristics. You don't just get a pass and say, "Eh, I'm not an elder. I don't have to do this. This is still the benchmark that we're to aim for. How are you doing in that? Thirdly, we need men courageous enough to pursue the role of elder. Do you have the courage to do it? You need the trajectory of your life to be in passion and pursuit of God's purposes uh, to be an elder to serve the people of the church. doesn't mean you're perfect. doesn't mean you're ever going to feel like you've arrived. I hear that. I hear a lot of men say, um, I'm not there yet. Well, what do you expect, a halo? 
You're going to get a credit card that says elder, elder qualified or what? You've been pre-approved as an elder of the church to shepherd 200 souls? doesn't work that way. It, 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 you'll know, and God lays that on your life, and you'll see it. And sometimes you have to grow into the position because I don't think any of us ever feel completely qualified, as I know my brother Scott has agreed. Scott, you were how old when you became an elder? Too young. But he's grown into that position and served very faithfully for many, many years, um, which is fantastic. And I remember us, we were talked about it, and Scott says, you don't ever feel qualified. You, you grow in it. Fourthly, make sure that you respect your leaders. Respect your leaders. If God's in, in, in the book of Hebrews says, obey them. Make, help make their job easy. Help make my job easy. And I'm not being a jerk. <laughs> Please don't think that. But help me out. Don't try to be a difficult sheep. <laughs> Fifthly, make sure that you submit to the, the leadership of the elders so that their job will not be a burden. Don't try to duck them disobey them. If they share a concern with you, they don't do it to be jerks, but for your benefit. I, I don't, I'm not there to be a jerk for any of you. I hope you don't think that way. I do because I love you, and I do. I really do. I may not always come across the right way. Um, I'm a weird guy, but um, I love you. I, I really do. And I want to see you grow in your walk with the Lord. Lastly, make sure that you're praying for your leaders. I'll tell you, when I was in India, I have never felt the prayers of so many people in my life. And I, I consider myself blessed to serve at this church, and I got to brag on you to a bunch of Indian pastors. And, I, and I, it was an honor to say that my church is a praying church, or the church which I serve as a praying church. And I pray that you do pray. Please pray for us. Pray that we might hold fast the word of life. Pray that we might shepherd, we might be bold, we might have integrity, and that we might make, have the courage to do the difficult things for the glory of God. So I encourage us all to rethink what God has laid forth in his, church, in his word for his church and how the church is to function. Let's not look at tradition. Let's not look at try to always look what is in it for me. But what does the word of God say and how can we best glorify and honor him? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we come before you and as we think about your church and how you've set it up, we are reminded, and we would be remiss if we did not remember that the church and all who are in it are in it because the blood of Christ has purchased them. Lord, we remember your son, that he died to set us apart, that he gave his life on the cross for our sins, that for all who then would look to him, repent of their sins and believe in him would be saved. Lord, we are reminded that you gave your son to take the wrath of God upon himself, that he died to set us free from our sins, past, present, and future. He died to give us life with you and give us you, a peace with God, a peace with ourselves, and a peace with others. Lord, may we learn to live in this peace. May we learn as a body to submit so that your purposes might be fulfilled in us and through us. So, Lord, please raise up godly men. Lord, we know that you're looking for a few good men, and I pray that you raise up godly men to help uh, us as, a, as an elder team shepherd your people 
and lead them in the path of righteousness to help them learn how to forsake sin and embrace you for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.